0: Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we're very fortunate to have Richard McLean from Frontier Capital join us on the podcast. So sat down with Richard recently, um, as they start to head into their next fund, which would be Fund 6, um, they raised a $700 million growth equity fund a couple years ago and are in the process of raising their next fund. So really interesting conversation um, as we sat down and discussed you know, the aspect of running the business. Um, you know, obviously when Richard helped co-found this back in, uh, back a few years ago, um, they were doing all aspects of the operation. And now as he shifts into more of a pure management role, what's that like? Um, how's the firm go into an investment? So we explore, does it go in and do... Um, kind of co-investing with other firms or are they out there on their own and how's that space kind of heating up from a competition perspective and how do they differentiate in today's marketplace uh, we touched base briefly a little bit on WeWork, even though it's certainly not a space that they would deal with um, but really good back and forth um, exploring you know the fund growth the talent pool here in Charlotte, um, and how much Richard thinks of it. So certainly, as always, certainly hope you enjoy another great podcast with Richard McLean from Frontier Capital. All right. Well, thanks again, Richard, for joining us on the show today. Certainly glad to have you. Yeah, uh, happy to be here. So, um, as my as my audience knows, I typically start off with kind of a softball. Um, so maybe you can take a couple minutes and just tell us a little bit about. Um, or kind of how you got here. Who are you um, uh, and the path that Frontier has taken over the course of the last 19, almost 20 years?
1: Yeah, so I I actually uh, started my career here in Charlotte in 1989 working for Nations Bank, which was, of course, the predecessor of Bank of America. So I was here, um, really started my career, um, you know, working in investment banking here in Charlotte, left, went back to business school, Um, Worked in New York, worked for a family office, worked for a a small private equity fund, and then in uh, the summer of 99, I teamed up with uh, one of my colleagues at Nations Bank. Uh, Andrew Linder, and we co-founded Frontier. That was uh, almost uh, 20 years ago, and uh, we've been building that business here in Charlotte ever since. Were y'all in, you said you spent some time up in New York.
0: Um, Were y'all in New York, or were y'all back down here um, immediately prior to starting the fund?
1: We were back here in, uh, in Charlotte. Actually, Andrew, I had been out of business school for about uh, about four years, uh, working in North Carolina and living in Charlotte, and uh, Andrew was just graduating from uh, from Stanford Business School, okay, and uh, and wanted to get out of California and, and and back to Charlotte where you know he'd started his career. Okay, what was the um what
0: was the business plan in 1999? Yeah, so
1: um, in in 1999, as we kind of looked at an opportunity for uh, a small private equity fund. There was a lot of money chasing kind of the early days of the internet and like dot-com opportunities. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, there was um, you know a fair amount of money that was focused on traditional kind of distribution, manufacturing businesses, a lot of family-owned businesses, kind of more kind of LBO-oriented investing. And we really saw this kind of opportunity to work with companies that were kind of tweeners in the middle, Um, asset light, more tech enabled, um, usually younger kind of management teams, companies that were maybe five or six years old, maybe even younger at that time, um, that were really, you know, higher growth assets, but didn't have access to debt capital. Um, And there weren't as many investors really focused on that kind of tweener market back when we launched the fund. In uh, in '99, so we were very much focused on kind of tech-enabled services, uh, IT outsourcing. Um, you know, uh, it wasn't called software as a service at the time, but kind of more software-enabled businesses. That those were all kind of part of our business plan when we when we launched the fund 20 years ago. When you launched
0: it, you launched with Fund One. Um, what was the goal from a fundraising perspective for Fund One?
1: Yeah, we um, we raised about $45 million in an SBIC format, so okay. we had about $15 million in, in private capital that we raised from mostly high net worth families uh, and a couple of small kind of institutions. And then we had a $30 million um, issuance of securities backed by the federal government to uh, fund this SBIC. So we made about 17 investments uh, with that $45 million. Um, You know, the stage was kind of you know, a million to maybe five or six million of revenue at the time we were, uh, you know, we made the investment. So it was definitely an earlier stage company, a lot earlier than kind of what we've been doing since fund two. Um, but, uh, it was, um, um, it was a great way to kind of launch our firm, uh, to start building our track record. Uh, we did really well with that fund actually. Uh, it was, um, a a 2x net fund to the investors, which was really good considering that, you know, we kind of went through the dot-com bubble. Uh, There was a recession kind of in the 01 time period as well. So it took us a little longer to put that fund to work and get it back. But in the end, uh, we had good performance with it, which allowed us to raise our first true institutional fund in uh, in the 2006 time frame. Um, and uh, it was uh, we, we made some some great friends. We had we had two companies in that fund that, that went on to be billion dollar market cap businesses. Um, of course, we we didn't have the luxury of holding on to them for the you know 15 years that it took for them to become billion dollar market cap businesses. Um, but we had some n- nice successes with that fund. We learned a lot. And it was a great way to launch Frontier. Do
0: you remember what the first investment check you stroked out what company it was for?
1: Yeah, so our first two investments, which I'll, 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 they'll, will they'll remain nameless, uh, were, were not great investments out of the gate. Uh, so, the, so the first two um, were probably our, our worst investments in the fund. And then we, we got our act together and, uh, and did really well from there on out. But, were they uh, bad investments or was it just bad timing? Because it can be both at least. Yeah, you know, I think I think one was a bad investment, and one was probably a little, uh, you know, more of a timing issue. I think yeah. they were they were going after a, an opportunity that was real, and that over time, um, you know, had they had the kind of runway and and uh, and the and the ability to really pursue it over a longer period of time, I think they would have been successful. But you know, it was kind of an earlier stage. Um, you know, situation where the clock kind of ran out on them yeah. and the, and the investors really, you know, kind of tired of kind of funding, you know, what they were doing. But when you're looking at comp I mean, um, uh,
0: go back in the time machine with me a little bit. I mean, you're looking at companies in the one to $5 million revenue perspective, um, uh, back then. And then, you know, fast forward to now where you are looking at larger companies, obviously. Um, but what'd you learn in that time period, right? I mean, you ran that fund for eight years before you raised your second one, give or take.
1: Yeah. So I think that sometimes the challenge with earlier stage investing is, um, really making sure you've got a, uh, an established product market fit, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to really, um, when you're in that kind of one to five zone, you're really figuring that out. And as an investor, you're going to help manage your risk a lot more to the extent that you can really dig into that and get some comfort that that's been established. and that you know because then it becomes a little bit more about execution risk. and you know how you how you, how you scale that, how you roll it out. but in the in the early days, I look back at some of the things that uh, you know that didn't that didn't work out for us, and I think that that product market fit was more aspirational. It was more of an idea. It was more of an assumption, and it really wasn't um, validated with a lot of um, you know uh, with a lot of customers with a, with a lot of evidence that you know it was really well established. So now fast
0: forward to where we are today. Uh, so product market fits your biggest struggle in that smaller stage. What's the biggest struggle that y'all face looking at companies today?
1: Yeah, I think it's um, you know it's 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 a lot of the it's a lot of the same. You is know, it? it's yeah, it's really making sure. You know, it's at a at a different stage, but it's really making sure that they've that they've that they've nailed that. Um, we're we're typically looking for a, our our average business today is about 15 million of revenue at time of entry, um, making a little bit of money, maybe losing a little bit of money, kind of maybe negative one to kind of plus one or two million of, of EBITDA. Growing at 20% uh, to maybe 30 or 40% on the on the upper end, um, so it's a more established software asset, um, and and we really are looking to make sure that we've got you know strong product market fit, and we're very focused on um, like retention and how sticky it is. Uh, because you know a lot of these businesses today uh, really traded a premium because there's a lot of interest in them, yeah. and I think one of the one of the things today you got to be really careful about at the stage we're investing is you know not not all software companies are created equal. They they all want to be valued <laughs> equally, yeah. but um, you know some of them really are special. In terms of the stickiness and the retention they have, and the relationship they have with their customers, and the, um, the market kind of leadership position that they might have, and then some of them are, are definitely more 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 aspirational, right? They're they're pitching that story, but when you really kind of dig into it, um, you know, you can find some cracks in it, and I think that's what you got to really, you know, kind of watch out for. Um, so, to, um, how do you? Um is how
0: do you find the cracks, right? And part of it's, you know, you've been looking for cracks for 19 years and it's a little bit easier for you to find them now, right?
1: Yeah, but, you know, we have, um, we, we do a, a ton of internal and, and third-party diligence on these companies before we invest. And so, you know, there, there, is, um, uh, there is a lot of uh, presenting of financial information and metrics that you can't take at face value. A lot of times, you have to really kind of dig in and do your own homework uh, to really kind of get to the bottom of the numbers in a lot of cases. And so, we're very fortunate that we got a really talented investment staff and an associate pool that you know spends a lot of time on that when we we're kind of reviewing an opportunity. Um, but that's a you know that 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 extensive kind of. You know, homework and deep diligence is, I think, really critical to being successful, you know, kind of at this stage of investing. You've seen that over the, you know, again, uh, nearly 20 years that the
0: fund has been in place, but, I mean, you've got a staff now around you, right? So how do you kind of drive that into them that, you know, know, no stone can really be left uncovered as you're, you know, looking through these deals to try to find the right ones?
1: Yeah, so it's become um, uh, a very like institutional like approach and so you know we've got uh, a group of principals and vice presidents which are you know very talented individuals who've got you know seven or eight years of you know investment experience that are kind of you know all on a path to being a partner one day that uh, that are really the quarterbacks of any deal team and so the deal team will include uh, in our case a partner a vice president or principal uh, and then an associate. And so, you know, they have been, um, you know, really onboarded and trained by the senior associates and the VPs and the principals. And we've established, you know, a, um, uh, you know, um, training program basically to kind of help get them up to speed. And, you know, when they're kind of walking in here day one, they've already got uh, at least kind of, you know, two, in a lot of cases, three years of experience as a uh, investment banking analyst, and that's when we usually kind of pick them up, and then they do another kind of like two or three years with us, you know, in, a, in an associate role. But they're they're a very important part of that deal team.
0: Um, the company's grown, right? I mean, it's gone from, you know, your $45 million fund, you raised $700 million two years ago, um, and you're in the process of raising another one. Um is this what you thought about 20 years ago? Uh,
1: it's been, no, it's really exceeded, I think, all of our expectations. It's been a ton of fun. Um, we've got over uh, 42 people now on the team, and it kind of started off with, like, you know, three or four of us. And so it's been, uh, and then that that team includes our, you know, our investment team, um, our, our sourcing and research team, uh, our back office and compliance, and then we also have an uh, internal, like, operating team that uh, that works with the portfolio, um, but uh, one of the the you know really kind of fun aspects of the journey has been you know when we when we first started off we were we were all practitioners and that's all we did right we had to go out and find the companies we had to be very involved in diligencing the companies monitoring the companies helping to kind of exit and drive returns and then you know as you grow and you add more people over time you, you still do some of that but then you have to You know, take on more of an executive role. And so that has been an interesting transition to kind of manage in my career. You know, actually having to spend more time working on our business versus just working on kind of the investments that our business generates. And it's been a a challenge, but it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it, especially at this stage of my career. Uh, It's probably the most fun I have kind of spending time, you know, on on Frontier. Um, You know, we're, we're in a, a very competitive business today. We're competing with um, you know big national firms that have billions and billions of dollars that, um, you know, that are focused on the types of companies that we want to invest in. There's also direct competition, you know, funds that are our size. Um, and then, you know, there's a, there's smaller kind of firms that have just kind of entered into the space. Um, so, there's there's plenty of competition for a rapidly growing $10 to $25 million revenue software company. And so, you know, we have to really, you know, stay on our toes and, and you know, keep innovating and kind of investing in our platform. To, to remain relevant, yeah. um, we've been we've been uh, we've been one of the top investors in sub 150 million dollar enterprise value uh, software deals in the last um, you know in the last 24 months. I think we've been one of the top kind of four or five in the country. We've made um, you know 10 new kind of platform investments in the in the software space. Um, so we're we're proud of that, but it, it's uh, you know it's a lot of a lot of work and investment to kind of keep that up. So. Um, when you when you started it, the concept
0: of private equity, growth equity in Charlotte was um, shall we say probably non-existent? Um, and that's changed a lot over the course of the last probably more so five to ten years, if not two to three years. Um, what's it? Um, So I would imagine historically you probably had to recruit out of New York and it's a little bit easier to start a recruit out of Charlotte in and of itself now. Or is that
1: transition slowly starting to happen here yet? We've always had great talent here locally to, to draw from. Um, you know, with the with the schools in sort of this region and and the you know investment banks and the and the and the banks. Um, so from an investment professional standpoint, um, you know we've got you know all the folks on our team could work for a major firm in New York or San Francisco or Boston, but they want to be in Charlotte and so we've really benefited from from that kind of pipeline of talent, people that kind of want to be here, they don't want to be in kind of the, you know, one of the major cities on the coast. Um, and we've also benefited greatly from the airport here. Yeah. And we have a national footprint today. We started off in the, in the southeast and mid-Atlantic, we expanded to the southwest. And now, you know, we've been for the last few funds, we've really kind of had a national footprint. We've got several investments in Canada, but but being able to get so many places direct out of Charlotte has been, you know, fantastic for our business. Um, and then on the if you, you sort of think about growth equity as a strategy and private equity and how that's matured, I mean, that's that's been very interesting as well. I mean, our, our our first fund was a little more kind of late stage venture and had some components of growth equity. Our second fund was really the fund where we kind of went all in with our, our growth equity strategy. The companies were more mature. We had a bigger fund. We could, you know, that was a $115 million fund that we made 10 investments with. So, you know, the average investment wasn't, you know, three or four. It was more like, you know, 10 or 12. And so, you know, during, during that time frame, call it the, you know, 2006 to 2010, I mean, we were out knocking on doors trying to find you know, good software companies and convince them that they wanted to partner with us yes. and 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 they weren't looking for money uh, and we were selling our way into those companies trying to convince the founders to take a little bit of liquidity, put some cash on the balance sheet to accelerate, um, you know, their, uh, their, their growth prospects. And it was a little bit of a missionary sale and, you know, over the years, um as as software has become more popular and as you know growth equity investing has matured um you know that the 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 investment that we're doing today is a is, is like a natural kind of stop in a software company's evolution meaning you know today you know our companies will typically raise anywhere from a half million to you know maybe up to five million from friends and family angels or maybe a smaller kind of local or regional like investor that's managing maybe a 200 or a 300 million dollar fund and then they'll they'll usually kind of raise that capital to get from you know zero to you know and then to to maybe five and that's when they may bring in you know maybe they'll, they'll have angel money to get from zero to five they'll maybe bring in that that smaller fund around five And then they'll try to get the business to kind of ten or fifteen million of revenue. And there's a tremendous amount of value creation that you can, you know, like achieve by taking a software company from, you know, those those different stages to kind of ten or fifteen million of revenue, especially if you've got a nice trajectory. So what we're finding now is uh, a lot of these companies, um, the the early investors have a nice win on their hands, right? The company's been fairly capital efficient and bootstrapped, hasn't raised a ton of money to get to 15 million in revenue, and you know we're generally seeing the early investors and the founders looking to bring in a partner like Frontier at that stage to recap the business, provide. A win and some liquidity to the early shareholders. Um, typically, we have founders that are looking to diversify their net worth as well, and that's really where we, we come in. And that's become, that's been a good thing for us because it's really uh, the velocity of investments has really kind of picked up and, and the actionability, you know, versus us trying to go out you know, and and sort of sell someone on, you know, a a transaction that they're not familiar with, it's matured to the point where, you know, companies will hire a banker um, or they'll go out on their own to kind of look for the right partner to kind of come in at that stage. So real quick, when y'all go in and make that investment today,
0: are y'all, um, are y'all wiping clean the cap table most of the time for previous investors, uh, those angel-type things, or does it depend on the deal?
1: It depends on the deal. Uh, typically, the, the non-active early investors want to get mostly out, yeah. if not all the way out. Um, our, uh, what I would call active shareholders, like the founding team or founders, Are typically looking to roll 25 to 40 percent of their stake in that in that next phase of growth, Um, and then we've had a couple situations with some of those those larger kind of couple hundred million dollar funds where. You know, they're, they're going to get a nice win as well but they'd like to roll maybe 25 or 30 percent of their stake as well so we're typically very flexible about um, you know kind of letting existing investors roll some of their uh, ownership and that in that next phase of growth We do like to see our founding teams if they're going to stay active you know kind of have a meaningful stake going forward so we have some alignment there. Um, when y'all go in and make an
0: investment y'all are making an investment with other funds as well right?
1: No, we're typically not at our at our stage of investment. Yeah, we're we're typically the the largest, or maybe kind of you know only institutional investor in that in that round. Okay. We do have, um, you know, some occasional co-invest if there's a good reason for it. But um, you know, our, our average investment right now in our our current fund is about fifty million dollars. Okay. And so we're really kind of doing that on our own, or maybe we've got, you know, again, a couple small co investors for some reason.
0: So, is the concept with a lot of the companies that you are going in and buying today? I mean, you know, um, fund one, fund two, different, but today, um, is it still you're going in and buying and hoping to sell it out to a larger company? Um, you're not quite ready to start to see companies go into the IPO stage yet, is that right?
1: Yeah, our, um, we, we have a. I call it kind of a base hitting strategy. We're we're looking to invest in a lot of um, vertical-specific, industry-specific kind of um, you know software applications where you know they're going to have a total addressable market opportunity of maybe 200 million to a billion. So those aren't typically going to be like IPO candidates yeah. that, you know, attract a lot of capital or are going to be sort of, you know, attract attractive kind of IPO listings. Um, but they're great companies and you can do really well if you can take that company from 10 or 15 million of revenue and break even to, you know, 30, 40, 50 million of revenue and six, seven, eight million of cash flow, yeah. And that's really where we're trying to kind of enter and exit those investments. Um, and, you know, about... Uh, about a third of our investments are sold to upmarket um, LBO software-focused investors that generally are managing, you know, multi-billion dollars, uh, you know, in, in their funds. About a third of our companies are sold to um, the platforms of those firms. So they'll either buy our company as a platform or our company will be an acquisition for an existing platform. So about two thirds of our exits upstream are somehow related to private equity, either a private equity backed strategic or we're selling it directly to a private equity firm. And then about a third of our uh, remaining exits are to a strategic buyer, usually kind of a large or mid-sized public company. Um,
0: Do you have disappointments now in company acquisitions? Um, probably not failure, so to speak, but things that just don't quite go as, I mean, um, you hope they all are fantastic, right? So to a certain extent, there are yeah. always disappointments, but... Um,
1: yeah. How are disappointments viewed in this space yeah so we we have less uh, we have less than a ten percent loss ratio across all of our I think funds since fund two okay um, we are uh, I would say any the bell curve for us kind of looks like this if you have ten companies in a portfolio you're going to have two or three that are real runners, right? They're the ones that are your real stars that are kind of out front. And then you're going to have maybe a couple that are uh, your, I call them your kind of high handicappers, right? They're, you're, you're struggling a little bit to, you know, get your money back, a modest return. You know, maybe you're going to take a small, like, loss to kind of get rid of it over time. And then we're, we're looking to have a pretty Solid group of like base hitters, like in the in the middle. Okay. Um, and that that strategy's worked out, you know, pretty pretty well for us. You know, we kind of have, you know, five or six solid citizens, two or three runners, and you know, generally going to have a couple laggards.
0: What do you learn from the um, What do you learn from the laggards? Right. Yeah. Is it? I mean, it just goes back to is it the execution? Is it the team? Is it just a sometimes it's timing? Is it just a hodgepodge of different things that just don't work
1: out? No, I, I do think um, uh, you know. Sometimes it is a it is it is execution. It's, it's poor execution. Yeah. But you can fix that. Yeah. Right. And and again, what you what you can't fix is a is a bad market opportunity or bad product market fit. Again, I mean, if you if you've got that. You can really work yourself out of you know some underperformance with you know making some making some changes, um, and and so it really does kind of come down to that. And we and the other thing for us is consistently is if you can get a company off to a good start, right? If you can launch it post investment with some good decisions, some good focus some early wins, some, you know, solving some sort of low hanging fruit issues and get that momentum going kind of like out of the gates. It's, it's, I mean, it's just dramatically better investment, you know, and, and those that sort of stumble, you know, for whatever reason we've found have been a little more difficult to like get back on track. I and mean, they, sometimes they, they recover. From that, but it's it's a it's a setback, you know. I mean, uh, and if you kind of look at our 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 winners, if you will, uh, almost all of them got off to a really good start out of the gates.
0: Um, um, I mean, it's it's the same thing in any space, right? I mean, um, from an early stage to even a late stage. um, the more quick hits, the more quick successes you can have, the more you build upon it. Gosh you knows, you look down the street at the Panthers, if you can get off to a hot start yeah. in a game, right? It's right. Just so much easier to start to build on that momentum yep. um, and take off and run from there. Um, how, much is this, um, how much has this space changed over the course of the last 10 years? I mean, you mentioned earlier you've got a lot more competition. Um, you've got a lot more money probably flowing through it. Um, how does that affect um, the investment decisions that you're able to make, right? I mean, do you find yourself sometimes almost chasing a company a little bit higher than you want to in evaluation just because you like the product market fit, you like the management team, and you've got some young hotshot down at Austin that's also offering a little bit more, or are y'all able to navigate that some now because you've got 19 years worth of experience and track record of helping coach teams
1: through it, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what's the, what's, what's so, the evolution of this thing? So, yeah, I think, um, I think kind of what you're, <coughs> what you're hitting at is, um, we've had to become a lot more selective about like where we spend our time. Right. So, you know, we we don't sort of chase everything. We're very targeted in terms of um, the types of companies that we're going to lean into, right? Uh, and we got to feel like we have some edge there um, that the valuation is going to be, you know, in some sort of like you know reasonable like ballpark and is going to kind of fit our strategy, and that. You know, we're, we're typically looking for a, a, a company where valuation is important, of course, but there's other factors that are that are at play in their decision about who they want to like choose as a partner. Um, you know, just going in and being prepared to like pay the most is not—I I don't think—is a great strategy. And so we're one of the things that has definitely changed is we've become. A lot more selective about where we lean in we don't just take a lot of random management meetings with companies just to sort of get up to speed right we we'll, we're typically you know we're, we're going to spend the time to really kind of dig into a company uh it's going to be something where again we, we feel like we've got some sort of advantage or edge and, um, you know, that's about 50 companies a year for us that we really, you know, spend a significant amount of time with that we think could lead to a potential investment.
0: That's, um, that's a lot of man hours going into 50 companies then, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but we have, you know, we have a, we've got, uh, let's see, five, uh, four different deal teams okay. to spread so that, that across. Yeah. So yeah.
0: 10 to 12, to yep. 15 a company? Yep, a that's team. about right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what do you say to the small, early stage investor down the street? I mean, what do they learn, um, or you know, what are the what are the lessons that you can teach somebody that's a member of either Venture South or uh, you know the Wolfpack Investor Network or yeah. uh, Charlotte Angel Fund or whatever it is? I mean, what are what are the downstream lessons from what you see today that are potentially applicable
1: there? So I think that. I- you know, we talked about product market fit, yeah. right? And sort of what's the what's the market opportunity? I mean, you can't. It's hard to um, recover from, you know, that. You know, by not not having that box checked, it's it's difficult to kind of recover from. But
0: but how do you how do you the, find product market fit? in, you know, in early stage things, I mean, it's a little bit easier because you've seen some traction, yeah. right? At your level product market
1: fit with those early companies is so it, it evasive. looks did look it, it is evasive but but you're you're just trying to handicap at that point like probability of yeah. right i mean is it is it in the you know it, that's kind of the art of that right is it you know can you do you feel like there's enough there that you can kind of get on base and and at that stage you know the the founder Persona and like determination and personality and integrity, and all of that is like very important. I mean, a lot of these companies that we are recapping at you know 10 or 20 million of revenue um, were started by I call them subject matter experts, they have technical backgrounds. Um, You know, we have a, a great company. Uh, in Orlando, Florida, that was started by a guy who was in the IT group of a sheriff's department, and he saw an incredible, this all the incredible inefficiencies around kind of like document management and all the risk around like compliance, and you know, and he basically kind of built a you know vertical specific solution for document management and compliance for like law enforcement and public safety and became kind of the number one player in that, that space. And, um, you know, I I think a lot of early stage companies have a founder like that, right. right? Who is, you know, knows the problem, knows the pain point has created a, you know, a a solution to go solve it. And I, I think that, um, to the extent that you can find that type of founder, that is willing to take like some coaching and some help and some guidance to kind of help navigate that you know that early phase of trying to get a company from a couple to five or six million in revenue yeah. is 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 important um, and you know we've we've even seen it in our companies when we've teamed up a first time founder CEO with the right resources and got the you know put the right team around them they they have been successful a lot more of the time than just sort of giving them you know a funding round and sort of you know saying hey good luck yeah. because you know it's it it is it's a difficult thing to figure out like the first time around and and you know having you know having some seasoned help around if, if it's on your board or as a mentor or as some sort of, you know, uh, just sounding board to help you avoid like landmines and, and help you prioritize, you know, your, your, your resources and your opportunities, I think is, is a, I think is a big deal.
0: So how much time do y'all spend with the companies once you've made post investment, right? I mean, you're five hours a week or you five hours, and it's going to depend, I know. Yeah. um, I guess especially in those early days is probably not only are you putting in man hours to do the due diligence on the front end, that first year is probably a critical time period for you to spend and help fill out that void, right?
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. So we're very hands-on investors. We don't, like, shy away from that. And we're looking for companies and teams that, like, want help. Yeah. And so we, we do have an in-house operating team that is sort of working with our companies. And, you know, it's we do it in a very collaborative way. We don't have a prescriptive approach that we think fits every company. Uh, we really kind of go into each situation and we work with that that team to decide kind of, you know, hey, what where do we have blind spots, right? Is it in... You know, is it in our go-to-market? Is it in marketing? Is it in, you know, customer success? Um, do we have, you know, spots on the team that we need to upgrade talent-wise? And we really kind of come up with a list of, of things that we're going we're gonna to tackle. And, and I, I think in, in, in a lot of cases, if things go well, in the first kind of 24 months is when you're really rearranging a lot of that furniture, right? You're really trying to kind of help position the company to kind of hit this new, like, operating rhythm, right? Where, you know, we we, we are underwriting a lot to just, you know, um, increased organic growth, yeah. right? So we're, we're trying to drive more bookings and we're trying to drive better retention and customer success. And, you know, uh, we we do make you know, a small acquisition in about half of our investments that's usually kind of related to additional product capability for the companies. Um, But most of the top-line growth that we're getting is going to be through organic growth. And so we're really looking to kind of build that team where they can, you know, hit that new stride. And it takes a a little while to do that. It doesn't happen overnight. And so I would say in the first – couple years we're generally a lot more involved and then start to back away as the company kind of hits its rhythm and you know that's when i think you can really see a lot of value creation in years kind of three four and five when they've kind of put all that together and you know it's really all clicking for them
0: so to a certain extent those early years those founders before they've gotten you they've willed the thing to victory yeah um and they kind of wield it as far as they can. And y'all are at that point in time coming in and just helping put in place so that the company itself starts to drive its own success rather than purely just
1: Yeah, it's taking an an entrepreneurial kind of business and, and, you know, making it a little more like institutional. We've, you know, about about half of our founders uh, are very um, interested in sticking around as the CEO. And, uh, and we're very open to that. And again, we, we work in, in those cases where we, we feel like that founder can transition into that you know kind of growth company CEO for that next stage, you know, we work very hard to get the right team around them to you know get the right kind of mentorship and kind of board to kind of help them be successful with that next phase of growth. And then we have about half of our founders that are looking to um, kind of exit the CEO role. Um, a lot of them want to stay on the board and, and want to stay involved, you know, at, at a higher level with, with the company. Um, so we, you know, we're very open to kind of, you know, both, both of those, um, scenarios. I jokingly tell my clients
0: and I'm dead serious about it when I jokingly say it, um, that I learn more from them than
1: they do for me. Yeah. Um, do you ever feel that way? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, we, it's been, uh, You know, we've got, I think, a lot that we can bring to the table on, like, best practices and tactics and resources to kind of help, you know, again, institutionalize the business, get the foundation in place to really scale. I mean, we're looking to kind of double or triple the business from where we invest, and that takes a different playbook than kind of, you know, what, what you had before. But I mean, these 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 founders and CEOs, like they they never cease to amaze me in terms of, you know, what 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 they've created, how smart they are, um, you know, the, the knowledge they have of the of the market opportunity and the product, and um, so you know we we've had several cases where um, we've had a founder stick around at the board level and be a tremendous board member because they just bring a totally different perspective. Than sort of the investment and operating team that's, yeah. uh, that's on the board. That's cool. Um,
0: what keeps you up at night? Um, is it um, is it business risk for Frontier Capital? Is it Trump and the China trade war? Is it um, the next recession? Um, is it
1: whether or not Cam comes back in week five? What keeps you up at night? Yeah, I, I'm. You know, obviously, I think 2020 could be a pretty choppy year uh, just because of, um, you know, I think you are even seeing it in the markets today where the the Congress is getting together to decide whether they're going to impeach Trump. Uh, So it's going to be a very, I think, just politically dynamic year. Markets don't like uncertainty. I think there'll be a lot of uncertainty next year. So I, I worry a little bit about that. Um, You know, we're not really seeing um, softness in our B two B software companies. I mean, everyone, you know, we're we're seeing, you know, good bookings and growth. So we're not really seeing businesses kind of pull pull back in in terms of the of the portfolio. Um, You know, I'm I'm still trying to wrap my head around, you know, this kind of new world of monetary policy and the impact that it has on asset prices
0: yeah
1: um, you know asset prices are up across the board um, you know there's talk of like negative interest rates which is just not something that you know I, I really grew up understanding or studying <laughs> and, uh, did. and how that like you know affects you know our, our investment strategy um, and uh, so I think those are things that I that I worry about I mean we you know, from from our standpoint, um, we feel like uh, prices are up for all good assets, no matter kind of what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, we certainly have to to deal with that. Um, you know, there's definitely, I think, we see a, a, a little bit of a flight to quality. So when we when we're kind of looking at investments or when we're looking to maybe exit companies, you know, the the, the higher quality, less cyclical assets everyone wants to be in those right everyone's kind of sort of got one foot into kind of looking for a little bit more of a safe haven yeah um, you know we've made a couple of investments in the gov tech software space which we sort of view to be maybe a little less cyclical in a downturn because of their their stickiness in that customer base we've just you know made a recent investment in kind of like that healthcare space again mm-hmm. something that's you know viewed as being a little less cyclical and we're we're really looking again for these You know high retention businesses that you know in in a downturn you may have to hold on to them longer but you're still gonna you know get to a good outcome right and may your, your your rate of return may be a little bit lower because you had to hold it a little bit longer to kind of weather you know some sort of storm um but we you know we don't use a lot of leverage on our companies. So we, you know, we kind of came through the last financial crisis really well. Our uh, our strategy is not one that's leverage dependent or that's really kind of built on financial engineering. Um, a lot of our companies are focused on, you know, outsourcing and cost savings for, you know, mid to large enterprises. Yeah. So, you know, you would think they're typically, you know, in a, in a downturn, they're typically looking for that. So, you know, we, we really try to find this kind of all weather strategy where you know you just kind of get into these good software companies and you know you if you got to hold them a little longer, you're, you're still going to be okay.
0: Is that the same? So um, so you raised a fund in 2007, then you raised another one in 2012, um, and you raised some more, and now you're you're about to start raising for fund six. Is that right? Yeah. Um, do you take that same kind of approach in 2012 as you do 2019, or do you let um, kind of the current economic climate—I uh, climate, don't want to say control your investment decisions, but you—you know—you said you're yeah. making a few gut Um Well, we—you just kind of make conscious decisions like that.
1: If yeah, you were totally. You. I mean, we we're—you know—we were looking at our portfolio, making sure. We don't have too much exposure to one category, you know, that, that we feel like might be a little more susceptible to, you know, a downturn. And we do a lot of vertical software, but there's some verticals that are inherently more cyclical than others. Yeah. So trying to kind of avoid or make sure we have little exposure uh, to that is, um, is something that we definitely um, are, uh, are, are focused on.
0: That's smart. Um, I never really given it any consideration that you would balance it right, but it makes yeah. a ton of sense that um, you know uh, probably ten year operating um, agreement, right? You don't want to get on the outside of that. So um, and making ten year investment decisions rather than twenty year investment decisions sometimes, right?
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: So um, do you mind if we step out and talk uh, just for um, a couple minutes about current news we work? Um, are you okay with that? Yeah, sure. Um, so we were, you know, obviously um, made an announcement earlier this year that they were going to come out and go public, and I think their initial was uh, was seventy five million, and they backed it down, and now there's all kind
1: of conversations, right? About I think they were talking about a f- almost a fifty billion dollar valuation. Is that and, what it was again? Okay. And then okay, yeah. the whisper was that maybe they could get it done at ten. Yeah. And so then they've. I've, I sort of think it's a very interesting story, so I've been following a little bit. And they, you know, they've of course pulled the IPO, and today they said that the CEO is going to perhaps step aside. I Saw that. Yeah.
0: So how does that? I mean, you saw Uber, some struggles with Uber and Lyft yep. and stuff like that, um, and not your space because you're not going in at that level. But how does that? Um, how does that impact your world um, specifically? And um, and just kind of the illiquid private equity space in general, right?
1: We're so far removed from that. that, And and the, the type of company that we're looking for is just a completely different like investment, you know? I mean, that, that is a, that's a Silicon Valley unicorn, like those, those really don't have much impact on, you know, our, our valuations or our companies. And, um, you know, we, we, um, you know, the, I think the private markets are definitely impacted by the public markets, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there's certainly a, a lag effect in that, right? As as the as the as the public markets come down, it takes a while for it to work its way into private market valuations. I think that lag effect is um, much greater than it used to be because of all the money that's been flowing into private equity because of the you know, the rate situation yeah. that we've got. Uh, and so, you, you now, I think, it won't. they're not quite as tied together as maybe they used to because there's a lot of overhang there that even if the markets were to go down, you know, 30 or 40%, it's going to take a while for some of that overhang to kind of work its way through the system and kind of to see private company, you know, valuations adjust. Um, and so you just kind of have to be 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 aware of that but uh but the WeWork thing is kind of a a, a non event i think for us do you want a founder like him on your team or no he's not he would not be our type of uh <laughs> our type of guy i mean we're looking for you know i we're we're looking for a um a much more kind of low ego uh, uh humble like you know all all of our founders fit that kind of persona right yeah. i mean they're 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 hardworking, high integrity low ego just um, and, they, and they've taken you know a lot of it's, a lot of times they've taken you know 10 or you know 12 15 years to build a business that's 15 20 million in revenue I and mean, it's their like life's work right yeah. and so we're very respectful of that and we're we're looking to You know, partner with people that really care about that next phase of growth for their life's work, right? And and who their partner is for that. So, definitely different different persona than uh, the CEO we work. So, um, so, um, so when he steps aside, you won't be investing in this next company then. I I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah, no. I mean, he's. It's an interesting story. I mean, he's he's obviously already taken out hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, you know, in the in the private financing rounds. Yeah. And um, uh, it's just, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, it, it, they're the third largest holder of capital lease obligations, I think, in the world. So one of the interesting things is if a company, if it does end up in, in, in bankruptcy, I mean, I, I have seen some some articles about the, you know, the ripple effects in the commercial real estate market could be, pretty dramatic um, but you know hopefully that doesn't it doesn't come to that I also saw that they might lay off like 5,000 people yeah. or something like that which I mean it just seems like a, like a tremendous amount of people to yeah. let go but the company has, you know a crazy a crazy burn rate yeah, where they are it does yeah.
0: um, the um, that um, you mentioned it a, a couple minutes ago the amount of money that's flowed into the private equity space, not necessarily just private equity, venture yeah. capital growth equity. Right. Um, it's been a trend that has accelerated over the course of the last five or ten years. Yeah. Um, from where you sit and the people that you talk to, um, do you see that trend continuing or do you see... Um, do you feel that there's one of those um, kind of mean reversions where we revert back to public markets, or um, how do y'all approach
1: it from a business yeah. perspective? So I think a couple things are a couple things are driving. Obviously, we talked about there's nowhere to get yield, right? And so not unless you like zero percent, right? So so the, the so the options for for a lot of investors is you know you, you sort of you know you 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 got to go into the you know the public markets, or you got to go into a hedge fund and private equity is, is has performed well. Yep. So the the numbers have been good, um, and I think a lot of investors like the fact that in private equity, you know whatever the strategy is, in, in a lot of cases you can you can you can affect change, and you can have a lot more like control and influence over value creation than you can in the public markets. Yep and so that has you know that's really set it up as you know um a very attractive asset class for a lot of you know pension funds and insurance companies and um you know family offices have all kind of shifted their allocations i think more to private equity over the last couple of years and i I think that that'll top out. My guess is that'll top out a little bit that, that, that won't can, you know, we're already kind of seeing a little bit in, you know, out there where, where more investors are kind of hitting their allocation for private equity. And, and they're starting to kind of pull back a little bit on, on that. Um, there's still new programs and, that are being launched Uh, there it's, it's uh, the, the, the sec that the, the industry has matured where there is, there is like less of that. And so you're definitely seeing a lot of institutional investors talk about their core managers and supporting their core managers and sort of shedding non-core managers. And, and that frankly just, in a lot of cases just all has to do with like performance. I mean, the the money is going to flow to the performing managers over time and, you know, non, you know the, the the ones that are, you know, kind of not considered performers will be, you know, kind of, you know, will, will be, I guess, you know, will be weeded out over time. And we're trying, go. trying hard to not be in that group. As I said, y'all historically have been <laughs> yeah. not in that group, right? Yes. To continue.
0: Yeah. So continue there. Right. Absolutely. So um, shift gears as we kind of come up on the end of our time. Um, is Charlotte. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you view Charlotte these days um, from a technology
1: investment hub, so to speak? yeah so so Charlotte was historically really not a tech hotbed, right? I mean we we were uh, we were finance and banking, real estate, manufacturing, distribution. I mean a lot of the a lot of the money made in Charlotte was kind of made in sort of like older, more traditional like industries. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of it made here and and it was made over a pretty broad group of um, you know individuals and families, right? It wasn't just you know, I think you have a there's other cities like maybe in Nashville where there there's the the, the money's a little more concentrated with entrepreneurs that actually started big companies that went public, right? It's a little more kind of spread out here, right? So you don't have these kind of like patriarch family offices, right? That have an entrepreneurial bent that are are pumping money kind of back into, you know, in Nashville's case, it's healthcare companies. I mean, there's there's, there's probably a half dozen, if not more, kind of billionaires in Nashville that you know are pumping money kind of back into the the healthcare IT scene yeah. there. Um, and there's a good there's a good cluster for that here. And and we've just had a little harder time kind of getting that cluster going here. It's it's happening. I mean, you know, um, Avid Exchange is a you know tremendous example of that. Um, and uh, there are other companies that are. A little off the radar screen if you will um but i mean it, there's no reason why it shouldn't happen here i mean with all the talent that wants to be here in charlotte um and i, I think uh you know if you if you talk to the 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 you know the or you know lending tree is another i mean there's yeah. we have a half dozen great examples of of companies and i and i think you know, those will can, red red ventures. I mean, it's just. I mean, we've we've got them. I yeah, mean, we we've do. got big big successes here, um, and and you got to believe over time that those are going to spin off. You know, other you know software and tech companies, and that that community is going to start to start to build here. Do you think? Um, uh, you know, joke around about the Panthers a little bit, but do you
0: think David Tepper coming into town kind of a different way he made his money kind of spurs people to look in, um, um look outside of your traditional so- uh, sources? I mean, do you think he um, kind of pushes? I mean, he made his money in you know the hedge fund space, right? Yeah. I mean, um, you success over the years, um, do you think just The the concept and the talk around town starts to spur people in the different space, or do you think it really goes back to waiting for some of these companies like an avid or red ventures and some of the other things to um, to start to throw out those
1: serial entrepreneurs? Yeah, I I think that's what it's all about. Yeah, I think it's the serial entrepreneurs that. You know, spin, spin out that, you know, um, or, or raise money from, yep. you know, some of the wealth that's been created around some of those assets here in town. You've got people that are predisposed to kind of want to, you know, they understand, you know, investing in tech and software and they want to they want to kind of help get companies going. Um, well, hopefully
0: that'll be the case, right? You won't have to hop on an airplane to go to the next investment we, opportunity. Yeah,
1: we, we would love to do more in Charlotte. Yeah, uh, yeah it's a... Um, we we do we've got a we've got a, a healthcare business called Access One in Rock Hill. Okay, yeah. Right now, um, so we're 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 active in the in the region, but yeah, we'd we'd love to
0: love to see more. So well, um, I don't think you're alone. I think we'd all like to see more pop up here in Charlotte. I mean, I think the good news is, um, it's starting to happen. I think you're starting to see more. Um, you know, more founders looking at Charlotte, we, um, moving here from other cities and things like that. It, it takes a little while for them to pop up to your size, though, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's happening, I think. So, um, well, I can't thank you enough for you know an hour's worth of your time. No, today. it's been a lot of fun. So uh, enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, no, enjoyed shooting the breeze about y'all's approach and everything else. And it's obviously been a huge success story, and uh, hope it continues uh, for y'all over the course of the next twenty years. Thank you. So thanks.
2: William Bissett is an investment advisor representative with Seacrest Blakey and Associates, a registered investment advisor. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Seacrest Blakey and Associates. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Seacrest Blakey & Associates does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interests may be offered only to persons who qualify as accredited investors under the Securities Act and a qualified purchaser as defined in Section 2A, Paragraph 51, Line A, under the Company Act or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interests. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.